is the Enter Sad Men podcast. Every rock and metal album you should own. Reviewed, rated, and ranked. Hello there. Welcome along to Enter Sad Men. Uh, welcome back. If you've been with us before, it's good to have your company on the next leg of our mission, um, which is to lovingly craft the ultimate hard rock and heavy metal Hall of Fame, a league table of rock and metal albums that were released between the years 1970 1995, which is our idea of rock's golden age. My name's Steve. I'm with Mark and Richard, as usual, with three more albums to review, to rate, and to, at the end of the show, to rank um, in the Hall of Fame, which has, because this is episode 52, and we review three albums each episode, it already has 153 albums in it. (laughs) If you've been with us before, you'll know that we pick three albums from a theme, randomly generated, um, and the theme this time around is Chris Sangarides, the late Chris Sangarides, uh, English-born record producer, and we've all picked albums, therefore, that had his paw prints all over. It doesn't have to be a producer, it could be engineer, whatever, um, but he's been involved. That was the point. And, well, Mark, I'm not saying the pickings were slim, but compared to the show we did not long ago focused on Bruce Fairbairn, one of his contemporaries, there was less to go at here. Is that is that? Am I being unfair or not? Uh, no, I don't think you are being unfair, are you? Because the thing is that um, Chris Sangaridis didn't limit himself just to hard rock and heavy metal. So he had a really diverse range of bands and artists and what have you that he worked with. So no, we it was a it wasn't exactly slim as you say, but it wasn't rich. That's for sure. That's for sure. And. And, of course, we hamper ourselves, don't we, by trying not to do the same artist within a short period of time. So that kind of ruled out two or three of them as well. So, um, yeah, but interesting, though. Really yeah, interesting. It, it was, yeah. And also, Rich, of course, with his best album, well, I'm saying his best album, Y&T's Mean Streak, had already gone. So um, that, was, that, that was the pick of the bunch, wasn't it? Am I, am I, wrong, am I wrong there as well? Richard, what do you think? Well, we'll see, won't we? We'll see. We'll see with these three. Um, yeah, we, we could have gone for Sabbath, couldn't we? We could have gone for Aussie. I mean, we've done some Halloween. Obviously, loads of Y and T. I don't want any more. Well, can we say we haven't picked King Diamond? But uh, thank God we didn't. But I think again, from what he's done, I, I think we've picked three really nice, varied examples of of the, of the stuff that he helped sound great. I'll go along with that. So go on then, boys. What um, what did you go for? What did you go for? So, well, I suppose it's me first. I, I really can't get out of the 1970s, can I? It's just ridiculous, really. I kind of looked through the list, and I went back a long way in his career, at least, and uh, I landed up with completely – I mean, this is the thing. Com- completely randomly, I kind of looked at it thought – that looks interesting. Knew nothing about the band really, other than they were a bit of a big deal around the end of the seventies, you know, sort of late seventies, early eighties. You know, a kind of an archetypal British rock band come hard, you know, turned into a hard rock band. And the links between the album and the band that I chose and everything else are astonishing. So I picked Quartz from their debut album from nineteen seventy seven. Sangarides engineered it. He didn't produce it. He was an engineer on it. And uh, as we all know, and as Alan Parsons will tell you, the engineer is often the most important cog in the wheel. So uh, I thought it'd be quite interesting. And literally when I chose it, I hadn't heard it before, ever. So it's been a voyage of discovery. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, it was interesting. It was absolutely a voice of discovery for me as well. And Richard, I don't know about you, but um, had you come across Quartz before? No, not at all. No, it's, it, and really, really pleased. So where did you go? Who did you find? I Rather than obscure, I just went obvious. It was an album that I had. I taped a, a mate's vinyl and uh, loved it, loved it at the time. And it's been so, so long since I uh, had heard it. And it's been lovely, lovely going back and rediscovering it. So, yeah, an album by the Tigers of Pantang, uh, their, their second album, and the second album he produced for them, uh, which is Spellbound. You're a child of the 70s. I'm very much a child of the 80s, so I've stuck in the, in a decade that I know well. Um, although I didn't know the band well, I have to say, which is ridiculous given how many thousands of albums they've churned out. Um, and I've gone for the Canadian mob Anvil and their third album, Forged in Fire, from 1983. And the first album on our Chris Sangaridis episode um, of Enter Sad Men is Quartz. And you were like a child in a sweet shop when you were, when you announced that you were doing this one, which I presume meant you knew the bollocks off them and were just chucked a bit to, um, to throw it out there. But I guess you'd, he- you'd heard it and then thought, yes. This is spot on. Opening album sleeve notes. I heard the first track and I thought, yep, that's definitely the one I'm doing. But what a gem. What a gem. Not just in terms of the, the, the music, which is very varied and you know, very random in places and surprising in others. Just the stuff that I didn't know. So produced by Tony Iommi, of all people. I didn't think I knew any of the band members from Quartz. Turns out we've already reviewed an album that one of them was on way back in episode eight when we did The Little Wizard Uh, because Jeff Nichols, who was the keyboard player in Quartz uh, and the bass player in Quartz, was also joined Black Sabbath and was with Black Sabbath for like 25 years, you know, and absolute eons. It was recorded at Morgan Studios. Where what other album was recorded at Morgan Studios? Tigers Man Tang Spellbound was recorded at Morgan Studios. So loads of links and everything comes back, doesn't it? It's all it's all linked back. This was released on May the 20th, 1977. It's an album that was re-released three years later. It's their debut self-titled Quartz, re-released three years later and retitled Deleted for reasons I haven't yet got to the bottom of. And if you two have, then uh, I'll be interested, obviously fascinated to know why that was, other than the fact maybe Jet deleted it from their catalogue. I have no idea. Runs to 36 uh, minutes, just a little over it. Jet was the label. It was their debut album. They followed up three years later with the very Nwobamish Stand Up and Fight, uh, which was released on the MCA label. The lineup: Mike Taffy-Taylor on vocals, Mick Hopkins on guitar, Jeff Nichols, the aforementioned, on guitar and keyboards, Derek Deck Arnold on bass, and Malcolm Malcope on drums. Didn't chart anywhere at all. have absolutely no idea what the sales information was like, but it's, well, the track listing will tell you it's nine uh, nine songs long. There's one in there. It's a minute and eight seconds, eight a minute and eight seconds long, which I kind of, I, I kind of see it as a an intro into the next into the next track. But four on side one, five on side two, and uh, I had a bit of a Lucifer's friend budgie moment with it. So yes, I, I was also straight onto Discogs, and that will be arriving, I think, the day after tomorrow. So how did you two get on with Quartz? Well. <laughs> Really, really well. Yeah, really enjoyed it. Yeah, it's uh, these sort of late, late 70s hard prog 
mix albums. It, 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 I guess I don't was it before with Norbum coming in and, and metal and rock I had some tram lines to go on. It feels at this stage there's still sort of groups all over the place, aren't there? So I yeah really really enjoyed it. But then of course it became even more intriguing once one starts to do the research and the backstory and everything that happened, uh, which adds another layer to it. But yeah, in terms of the album, incredibly varied. I mean, really good musicians, loads and loads going on, very melodic, and yeah, right on my street, very good. I can see why you both like it, I absolutely can, but the, didn't even chart in someone like Belgium. I find that amazing, extraordinary. <laughs> I, thought, I thought everything charted in someone like Belgium, but... Um... I saw one reviewer hail this as the greatest Nwobum album you've never heard. Um, and I pick him up on two things there. A, it's not amazing. I think it's very good. And B, it's not Nwobum. I mean, it just isn't. They predate Nwobum by a considerable distance. Tips its hat to Nwobum, doesn't it, in terms of some of its rock energy. But it's basically a early, mid-70s album, kind of slightly updated. So lots of melody. I mean, the Iomi link. It's so obvious, isn't it? Because there's so much. We're going to be referencing Sabbath left, right and centre here, early Sabbath from the get-go. So to that end, don't begin to think for one minute they were, they were a Nwobbin band and this is a Nwobbin album because it simply isn't. And I'm also asking myself, having listened to it through, I found it very hard to mark, by the way, because I was juggling it in my head left, right, because there's so much going on here. It is such a really good, as Richard says, such a varied album. They're obviously an incredibly hard-working band. Musically, it's really, really good. Really, really interesting. Um, but not, no, not the um, the greatest Nwobbam album you've never heard. No, and it's it's interesting. You talk about Jet, I think. Um, how many times have we talked about bands that are signed to labels that really don't know what to do with them? So, and I think it's really interesting that Quartz go away for three years and they come back signed to MCA. And Tigers were signed to yeah. MCA. Wow. And Diamond Head were signed to MCA. And all three of them, arguably, are bands that should have been much, much bigger than they ever were. And you have to look at that and say, there's there's a common theme there. You know, and it's like it's like YT and Rock Goddess with AM, although they would never, you know, and certainly in the conversation that we have with Rock Goddess, they would never blame um AM for 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 the fact they weren't bigger than they they should have been. But mm. A&M were not a rock label. They didn't know what to do with a rock act. And I don't think Jet did, and I certainly don't think MCA did. Mm. So, you know, yeah, interesting times. But let's give it a spin. And... Um Into the fray with uh, a song called Mainline Riders or Mainline Rider. Um, now, can anybody hear the influence of Tony Iommi in this? <laughs> I think it's all hidden 
isn't it? it this is doomy. It's proggy. It's completely hypnotic. I think this is just a cracking song. And uh, the vocals, you know, Taffy Taylor, he's got a voice on him, hasn't he? Absolutely beautifully melodic. It seems that he can make it work on just about any style. It doesn't matter what it what it is. It's just he's just got a great voice. And um, yeah, there's all sorts of discussion forums around the internet about whether this actually was the genesis of the title track of Heaven and Hell. My answer: Fuck yeah. Everyone talks about the dead bass riff and there are stories around you know, the fact you know, Geezer Butler said he, he wouldn't even have thought of playing something that simple. And I remember us talking about that riff, that bass riff, when we, when we reviewed Heaven and Hell all those episodes ago. But it's not just that. The, the structure, the song structure of Heaven and Hell is virtually a carbon copy of this. Yeah. In terms of the speed ups, the slowdowns, the extra fast ending. I mean, yeah, there's on Heaven and Hell, there's a little bit of acoustic tacked on to the end to fade it out. But yeah, I just hope he got paid enough. Yeah, it's not a debate. Not a debate. Absolutely is. And the, 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 as you say, the, the thread I've been reading on YouTube is just the, it's the only thing that keeps recurring is Heaven and Hell. And um, yeah, it is. And I love it for, probably for that very reason. It's a great opener, really good opener. It's just dark and weighty and, you know, brilliant. Yeah, and and you listen, I've, I've listened to this at all times, day and night. It's best at night. Yeah. The lights out and headphones on. Yeah. Absolutely brilliant. I love this song. But it gives way to, as these things always must, to the next one, which is uh, a track called Sugar Rain. I'm going to reference quite a lot of bands through this discussion, <laughs> which, is, which is not to say that they ripped them off. I just think it's it's a reflection of the times that this album was released. But I'm getting massive amounts of Super Tramp. <laughs> oh, massively. It's exactly what I've written. Yeah. <laughs> I am. Huge amounts. Yeah. yeah. Especially the mid-section <laughs> of, of Sugar Rain. It's not so much the start, which just sounds like Tony I and me having a go at the Mr. Ben theme tune. But once we get through that... Um, massive and i'm a massive i'm a super tramp super fan and, and it's huge absolutely huge <laughs> it's, it's roger hodgson isn't it it's, yeah I mean, it's, it, it's almost like a sound alike yes <laughs> those harmonies yeah also the the kind of the kinks in here as well yeah I've, absolutely yeah i've got so the start is the village green preservation society by the <laughs> kinks meets yes is, is what, what i've yes. got and then Jethro Tull turned up. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> and who and who knew Tony Iommi could play the flute for fuck's sake? I didn't know that, so I was I was desperately trying to work out whether it was a guest appearance by Ian Anderson. <laughs> <laughs> no, because if it had been a, a guest appearance by Ando, he'd have made it last a hell of a lot longer and it'd have kicked out the guitar <laughs> solo. So uh, it was clearly but, wasn't him. It's a fantastic song. It's the, probably the proggiest song on the album. It's probably why I warmed to it because it is. It's so many different layers going on here, and um, it gets better and better. And I adore that last minute or so when it just kind of takes you to somewhere really chill. It's a really good song. Pretty strong start so far. Um, track three is Street Fighting Lady. Well, this is, I think, where you get the first hint of the of Norbum, don't you? Because it's got that kind of dirty, distorted guitar. It's probably a bit of a step down from the first two, but uh, mm. and 
unless I've completely missed it, the bass is missing from this as well. So it, it's quite a thin mm. production. Sangrides took his eye off the ball. Not enough bass. <laughs> <in it. laughs> I like this. I do like this. I must admit, and I've um, and I've seen footage of them doing it live as well. And it, I, I guess it's a pretty staple crowd pleaser. This one, it's just got that kind of. I mean, I'm a simple soul, so I like a simple riff, and this this gives me what I want. And I do like the way it keeps dropping back into it throughout the song as well. It's, whenever there's a little bridge or a segue or whatever, it just goes back into that riff. Uh, yes. Is it a step down from the first? I'm not entirely sure, actually. I, I like the conventionality of this. Yeah, it's more straight-ahead rock, isn't it? So we move into Hustler. It's lovely. It's sort of a gorgeous solo in it. And it goes really funky at the end as well. There's a lot of funk in it. Again, showing the diversity of the music. We're four tracks in, and we've had you know four very different listening experiences so far, but all of them good in their own way. But I, I really like this, but I don't like it as much as the first two. <laughs> but it's lovely. It's lovely. It's, uh, it's not scored low. I'm still hankering after Mainline Riders and, and Sugar Rain. <laughs> I'm confused.com here. This is where this is where I was talking about. I'm still not entirely sure how to mark some of the tracks off this album, two or three anyway. And this is the, this was the starting point. It's testing me. I'm still not entirely sure whether it's very good or not very good. It's just not made a mark on me. But does that mean it's bad? I don't think it does. No. So there you go. I mean, in a I've just said that how confused I am, and I think that kind of illustrates it. Are you confused, Richard? <laughs> No, I, it's a good and pleasant song. It's got an interesting riff, a reasonable break. I like the guitar solo and it's got a good bass line. All, all you need in a song. Track five then, Devil's Brew. And it certainly starts off devilishly, doesn't it, with that sort of slow plodding riff, um, which again has an echo of Sabbath about it. But actually it becomes very proggy, um, heavy prog, I think. And I'm going to... Put my neck on the line here and say, Richard, there are elements of this that are very Rush-like. I hadn't got that. I hadn't got that, actually. Let me let me listen. I, I did think it, it was it was the uh, the 70s version of Rock You Like a Hurricane at the start. I like the atmosphere in it and the harmonies. This really started to catch me, and uh, this is a quite a really hooky song for me. See, that's why I think it's a bit rushy. I'm getting quite a lot of Geddy Lee in the vocal. Yeah, yeah. And the first time I heard this, I thought, oh, Richard's going to love this because this is right <laughs> up his street. But then towards the middle and towards the, and, and into the end of the song, I also got some Genesis. It's just, mm. it's really quite proggy song, isn't it? That's a lot of that's that's a lot of different bands we've name checked on the side of, a, of an album. Have you come across a site called songdata.io, by the way? No, it's I, I I don't know why I was just surfing and I came across they it's almost like the dance value of songs that are on Spotify and I just typed in Devil's Brew and not on there and I'm just scrolling down and came upon songdata.io's view of Devil's Brew and I was in a good mood anyway because I'd just been I'd just looked at um you are um, Miriam Stoppard the ref on Viz and I was fucking howling anyway. I, I was I was in a good mood. <laughs> I just absolutely wetting myself. So I, I read Devil's Brew on songdata.io, which is a really straight-laced, no-nonsense, no-sides review of a track based on its danceability. And you're thinking, 
So it gives you all the information. So it's in 151 beats per minute, key in C major. Gives you harmonic matches, so songs that harmonically it sounds like. So like Evil by Merciful Fate, harmonically apparently it's the same as that. Loads of others we know, like Angel Witch and Saturday Night's All Right for Fighting by Flotsam and Jetsam. There's a long list of, of songs that harmonically Devil's Brew is like. But then at the end it sums it up. There's a little sum up. Devil's Brew by Quartz Information. This song is track five in Quartz by Quartz, which has a total of nine tracks. The duration of this track is 3.43 and was released on May 7, 2007. Go figure. As of now, this track is currently not as popular as other songs. Devil's Brew has a lot of energy, which makes it the perfect workout song, though it might not give you a strong dance vibe, so this may not be something that you would want to play to dance off. And that's it. <laughs> And I'm howling because I've done Miriam Stoppard and I'm now on and I'm in I'm and I'm in a happy place. It's just so brilliant. Great song, by the way. We're then into this sort of uh, interlude of uh, a song called Smokey, but I think for our purposes we probably treat it, don't we, as a as a um an intro into a song called Around and Around, which for me is actually the low point of the album. I'm not overly fussed with Around and Around and I found found it actually very difficult to find anything much to say about it. So I'm going to pass that over to you two. Yeah, I know what you mean. It felt a little bit of a trying to get back to Devil's Brew and not quite making it, if you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah, it's not quite round and round, is it? I do like that that, that bass and drum line at the start. As, from the midsection onwards, it, I just lose any kind of patience with it. It doesn't excite me. It feels like a filler, doesn't it? It feels like a almost like a companion piece to Sugar Rain, but is nowhere near no. as good as that. No, so that's true. I found myself sort of like drifting off, you know, as you do when you're driving, you're just kind of a, on autopilot a bit, and the music's on. But I was expecting it to go into the chorus of Sugar Rain. Hmm. Um, that's how similar I felt hmm. the two songs were. So not for me, really. That's the low point of the album, um, which is a shame because the next song, Pleasure Seekers, I think is really rather good indeed. I love the riff. It's another hypnotic um, song. It's another very Sabbathy song. I think the bridge lets it down a little bit, but the the hook line is just absolutely gorgeous. We're at the back end of the album, and there's been nothing. There haven't been any howlers on this so far, have there? This took me back to um, an album you know we reviewed not too many episodes ago by Axis. Remember Axis? Mm-hmm. Another late. 70s sort of yeah slightly prog this would have fitted precisely on it, it it's a circus well yeah i like it uh, the, the, I, I love the way it just keeps settling back into that groove and i really like the finish it's got really really good finish to it steve if they, if they release this 18 months earlier say do you think it changes what happens to quartz if, if they release this in 75 before punk when all the labels just want a couple of punk bands on there and, and that's all they're interested in marketing, when you suddenly now then got the explosion of, you know, big stadium rock bands like, you know, Foreigner and, and Journey and whatever else. Do you think if they'd released this earlier, they could have been a, a platform for something bigger and better? You would like to think so, wouldn't you? Because the musicianship on this album is really it quite is good, in places. Yeah. And, you know, they've, they've clearly got a relationship with Black Sabbath. They've toured with ACDC for that's God's right. sake. Played yeah. Reading twice. So, you know, this is not a band that were unknown to the world. No. They just, for whatever reason, just didn't get the break. Band in the wrong place at the wrong time, wrong label. 
is my feeling. This song, as much as any, shows what a great talent, talented pool of, of musicians these boys were. And I was kind of hoping that there's a kind of almost freestyle feel to this song, and I was hoping that they'd make that jam vibe last a bit longer, really show, really do a 70s show off, you know, and, and it doesn't, which is a shame, but it's a good song. It's a really good song. No, because what they end the album with is another Kinks song, yes. really, isn't it? I mean, it's oh, yeah. got that absolute Lola style or Waterloo Sunset style storytelling uh, element to it. Little Old Lady, this is called. Um, it's got a sort of slightly oriental opening. I love it. I think it's I think it's a really quirky way to end the album. I don't like this particularly. I have to be, let me just put that out there. This just kind of dawdles a bit for me. Am I the only one who's getting a bit of a plod here? I don't know. It's just not... Um... I think it's a, it's a typical 1970s finish on a kind of a stairway to heaven moment. You're not picking this for your hammock, Steve? <laughs> yeah. Listen, I've got a great hammock playlist, and this isn't anywhere near it, no. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's um, let's do some highs and lows then. Steve? That is my low. That is my low, little old lady. And hi... I, I'm, as I say, I'm a simple soul, so give me street fighting lady all day long. Richard? Milo, I think around and around. And I probably haven't given it as many marks as the song that copied it, but Mainline Rider is my high. Yeah, well, I'm completely with you on both counts. It took me a long time to get past Mainline Rider. When I put it on the first time, it didn't take me very long to get past around and around. So there you go. That is uh, Quartz from 1977, their debut album, self-titled debut album, produced by Tony Iommi, and we think, uh, I think we broadly agreed, is the genesis for the title track of Black Sabbath's Heaven and Hell album that came out three years later. Um, But it's time to move on to, well, into the 1980s and to one of my happy places as we go north through England and find ourselves at the doorstep of the Tigers of Pantang. Richard. Opening album sleeve notes. Yes, the Tigers of Whitley Bay in Northumberland. Formed in 1978, they were named after the Tigers uh, in a a fictional archipelago called Pantang in uh, some fantasy books by a guy called uh, Michael Moorcock. So these these were tigers that were kept by wizards. We got wizards, wizards again, Steve. Bloody wizards, bloody brilliant. They uh, released their first album, also produced by Chris Sangaridas in uh, 1980, called Wildcat, and then they followed that with this Spellbound. It was recorded in uh, January '81, released in April of that year uh, on MCA, as Mark mentioned earlier, and uh, recorded as uh, Mark said at um, also at Morgan Studios in London clocks in a little over 34 minutes nice and tight and good and uh, yeah personnel some of the original members rob weir richard rocky laws and brian dick big dick on drums were still there and they were joined by uh, two new guys a guy called john deverell on on vocals Uh, he uh, he replaced jess cox um apparently after management pressure allegedly but the other member who joined an additional guitarist and that was John Sykes. So so John joined them on, on guitar. 
Chart-wise, how did it do? Well, it did okay. I mean, it, it, um, it reached 33 in the UK. Didn't chart, obviously, in, in the US. It's, it's held out, held up as, as one of one of their favourites, one of the, band, the fans' favourites. And certainly for me, it's, uh, it, it's just so enjoyable because it's that beautiful balance of, of what they did best, that blend of melody and power. And I'm sure we'll come back to that a, a lot of, as we come through this album. So track-wise, there are 10 of them. Good old 10 tracks, five on each side. Gangland, Take It, Minotaur, Hellbound and Mirror on side one. And Silver and Gold, Blackjack, the story so far. Tiger Bay and Don't Stop By on side two. As I said earlier, it's been an absolute joy playing this again. What about you two? Just love it. Just a brilliant album. And uh, it's... We've got one of those discussions again, haven't we, about bands who should have made it but didn't on a grand scale here. They would be in anyone's top 10 of near misses, wrongful near misses, because we've discussed on the pod already several bands who we thought were good, but for whatever reason, it didn't happen. And I think kind of hand on heart, we really kind of know why they didn't make it. This, it's very hard to work out. Well, it's not hard to work out once you know the backstory, but originally what they were doing, they were, they, were, they were at the right time, they were making the right noises, they were musically excellent. If the first album was a marker, then this was the launch pad for the stars because the, the, the albums are, too, are quite different with the arrival of Sykes and Deverell, aren't they? This is a heavy metal album. And my memory of the early 80s is that heavy metal was okay in the early 80s. It was a good thing. On top of the pops, you had bands like Iron Maiden and Judas Priest and Saxon and Motorhead, this was all good. This was good music. It was it was accessible and it was acceptable. And Tigers of Pantang were doing it. And this is a heavy metal album. This is a proper heavy metal album. And I just think they didn't play the game. And I think they were stubborn and I think they were principled and they didn't play the game. And the game, and you touched on MCA earlier, and the game was you have to send out singles to crack America and they didn't want to do it. And by the time they were bullied into it, they produced an album that they didn't want to produce, which is The Cage, which I think is their fourth album. They didn't like it. In hindsight, no one else liked it. And they didn't want to do it. It was quite clear that this is what they love to do. And I admire their stubbornness and their sort of bullheadedness. But part of me thinks, why didn't they just play the game a little bit? Why didn't they just play the game and do what the record company execs wanted and put some shit on here that they didn't really want? And who knows that history, musical history might have looked very different. Having said that, I love this for what it is. And, and this isn't in any way a cop out at all. This is this is them heart and soul on the table. And it's some great metal. I think it's been a brilliant listen. And, and this is much better than the first one, in my view, by some distance. Yeah, musically, I, I, I absolutely agree with you. It is. It's a better album. I, I've got a really soft, gooey spot for the first album for Wildcat because they were totally different. It was a totally different sound, mm. Tigers of Pantang and Wildcat, to anything you'd heard before. You know, stuff like Euthanasia and Susie Smiled, it was all almost spoken word. It was it was a really kind of unique sound that Tigers had. And they I think with this, they took the best of what they had with Wildcat and they transferred that along with quite a lot of melody, you know, some bigger riffs, obviously the talents of John Sykes and John Deverell, and they made it better. Is it my favourite Tigers album? I don't know. that This podcast is designed to find that out. If I were talking from my gut, 
I would say I prefer Crazy Nights, which is an album the band didn't think was a worthy follow-up to this one. But having said that, you know, I listened to this over the last sort of week or so, and listening to Ties to Pentang just makes me happy. It really does. I just think it's honest, good, honest, down-to-earth, hard rock music, delivered with passion, delivered with lots and lots of talent, musical talent, instrumentational talent, and this is really accessible. But like you say, Steve, they don't compromise. And the bands that made it all compromised. Yeah. At some point, every single one of them compromised their values to make money. And you know, from Bon Jovi to Kiss, Metallica. Metallica never released a, a second Kill em All. You know, they released Ride the Lightning, which was more accessible and more commercial and more melodic. And you have to play the game. And hats off to them i admire it stand by your principles your artistic principles it's really important their career begins with wildcat and it really ends with crazy nights and they've got this absolute gem right in the middle of it right should we give that gem a listen Gangland, I mean, instant impact from John Deverell. He uh, certainly announces his, his arrival on this track, doesn't he? You can see why with this track they were lumped in with Iron Maiden, Kanye. I mean, for, for me, I mean, it, it, on, on this, John Deverell sounds like a better Paul Diano. This is almost early Maiden done more melodically. The two guitars, dual guitars, instantly fill the sound out. And the, this riff, this classic driving riff, ah, oh, it's just brilliant opener. <laughs> well, this is classic Tigers, isn't it? This is Tigers of Pantang at their absolute best, just ripping it up and, you know, throwing it down. I just, you know, what can you say? And and you're right, John Deverell kind of just goes, walks through the door, goes, it's all right, boys, I'm here. And I, I think, interestingly, though, Sykes is less obvious on this he's just another band member isn't he it's not the white snake john sykes people shouldn't go out and buy this album and think they're going to hear still of the night because they're not but he he raises their game significantly yeah. oh just a, just a just a statement track in it it's an absolute statement track already feels edgier and heavier than wildcat so it's 343 long this and packs enough punches to last twice that long you it's over it's just so much going on in it absolute quality opener Apparently, Sykes used um, Gary Moore's guitar for this. Moore was in the studio at the same time. And according to John Deverell, Sykes was a massive fan of Gary Moore, which somewhat allays the myth perpetuated by David Coverdale, doesn't it? That Sykes hated the blues. Well, you know, David Coverdale's made a, a good career for himself as a revisionist historian, hasn't he? Yeah. <laughs> All the tracks are 
credited to the whole band. But but track two, according to Weir, the only song him and Sykes wrote together, that became Take It. I think it's a genius song too, in a completely different direction. The melody's there, it's, it's poppier, it's more lively, it's upbeat. The little breaks and it's back to the riff, there's a drop in the chorus. I mean, it's just so catchy. Love this song. It is absolutely definitive new wave of British heavy metal to me. I absolutely love this song. It's probably my favourite Tigers song of all time. Oh, that's all right. It's not just me then. Because I know I know, Gangland was is held up with enormous fondness, isn't it, by Tigers diehards, as it's called, you know, their, their grand anthem. But I prefer this. I don't, yeah. I, this is track of the album for me. So clearly, I'm, <laughs> clearly I'm, I'm not alone. I, and it's the, what you were saying, Rich, it's the way it just rolls and keeps dropping back in and it keeps dropping back in. And then Deverell, everyone comes back in and we're still not done and it goes again. And it's, um, oh, it's fantastic. Uh, do you know what? Every time I hear this, I get frothy in my pants. I really do. I just think <laughs> it's absolutely fucking brilliant. <laughs> it's just glorious. This is as good as anything Maiden put out in their first mm. three albums. There's a small track called Minotaur, which I've never seen the point of. It's just sort of uh, 30 seconds of guitar feedback. So into the, the third song, proper other side, is is Hellbound. This is Nwobbam. That fast, classic riff, but still wonderful melodic chorus and the arrangements. And again, that, that brilliant, brilliant balance. And it must be Sykes on the first half of the solo. And it <laughs> must be Sykes on the first half of the solo. The dual guitar works great. Yeah, Gangland, Take It, Hellbound. What what an absolute trio. Just a fantastic side of an album. I, I do think it's more straightforward than yeah. than the first two. Yeah. Which is, there's nothing wrong with that. But I, yeah, I, I would still take, take it every day of the week. But just not forgetting for a moment the theme of this particular show, Sangorides has done an absolutely brilliant job with this. Hasn't he? Yeah, yeah. It's, 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 it's superbly balanced. The sound in this. They were hugely, hugely complimentary of him, weren't they? If you've ever read any quotes from them, I mean, Deverell said that he he caught the band's energy and the raw rage, but also encouraged our pursuit of melody. Loved the creativity of the process. Very much in tune with what we wanted. He clearly ticks all the right boxes with 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 this band. Who were clearly changing direction. Yeah, and Deverell said the biggest mistake they made was was not using him on the next one. Okay, well. Side one, this cracking side one finishes with, for me, another amazing song. Mark, you're right that Hellbound is is less Tigers. It, it, it's, it is more straightforward other bands. But they come back in, in Mirror, in a, a track five of, of side one, this slower finish. This is getting a bit proggy nearly, isn't it? Again, I love this song. Yeah, song of two halves, quieter first half. Heavier second half. It's a mini epic in four minutes. I get <laughs> yeah. to the end of this and think, Hang on, was that only four minutes? Yeah. Because I feel like I've heard about eight. Yeah, and in a good way, I mean, in a good way. It's almost like they're giving us a, a break from the battering and then they thought, oh, fuck that. <laughs> let's let's get going again. And um, halfway through the song, it's, it's, a really, it's a really thoughtful song. Yeah. Just when you think they probably don't do thoughtful, oh, they do. It's a great number. Absolutely great. It just shows their breadth and depth and scope and ambition, actually. There's huge ambition in this album as a whole, and I think that's reflected in this song. Great song to end a great first side. Mm. 
Let's flip it over. Uh, side two begins with silver and gold. And more. oh, here we go. As you say, you get a little bit of a respite with mirror. Flip it over. Normal service is resumed. Here we are, kicking off nicely. I love the build of this song. And then and then it drops into another another corker of a riff, doesn't it? Devil's voice again on this song is is adding you know, not only power and melody, and there's that, that lovely balance. I have an issue clearly with songs that have two colours in them. <laughs> the, the the black and the silver and silver <laughs> and gold. Because I, I love the riff on this, but I hate the chorus. Mm. Yeah, I'm getting that as well. Then the redeeming thing about the first chorus is the way it drops back into the riff. This is as wobbum as this album needs to be for me. It's just absolutely spawn. But yeah, I'm with you on I I do find that chorus quite lame, for want of a better word. Yeah. Yeah, lame. That's exactly what it is. Yeah. All of these songs, three three and a bit minutes, a couple over four. It's lovely. It's bite-sized. There's a ton going on. Uh, so side two, track two, is Blackjack. Well, take it up another speed. Oh, this is faster. This is heavier. I was trying to think what this reminded me of. They're almost echoes of groovier motorhead you know like sort of almost shoot you in the back love me like a reptile kind of kind of thing just an incessant drive to this song isn't there we haven't really mentioned the the, the backroom mess messes laws and dick as well for keeping this bloody going and throughout the album fantastic incessant almost sounds insulting it's not meant to this is what heavy metal should be you know every time i listen to this album i, I just I've kept coming back to the fact that this is so much about Deverell's voice because he carries those riffs. Wildcat was also full of really good riffs, but Jess Cox didn't carry them in quite the same way that Deverell does on this one. Then we get taken off in a completely different direction, don't we, for uh, track three of side two, which is uh, the story so far. I mean, what's this? Nwobba meets AOR? I mean, (laughs) this is so catchy. I can imagine this on a Journey album. It's light, it's summery. I mean, this brilliant, riff, you know, really good riff with a you know, lead guitar dancing over the top of it. And of course, in the second half, we also cherry on the cake. We get a bit of cowbell. I'm sorry to disappoint you both, though. Uh, we will be making an inquiry because this doesn't appear on ultimatecowbell.com. Uh, we need Ooh. to make amends there. Second single off the album, and it didn't do as well as Hellbound. And I don't get that at all. As soon as I put this on, I, I immediately thought, Susie, hold on. I mean, that's that's where I was straight away. And, and I just thought, this is this is just perfect. Early 80s chart fodder. I'm thinking of what bands like Saxon were getting in the charts. I don't know why this didn't do well. I think it's a great mm-hmm. song. Yeah. Such a great riff in it. The harmonies are great, catchy, lovely little guitar runs. Packs a really commercial punch to me. This is like a jacked up version of Stone in Love. Mm. It's, um, yeah. it's yeah. really, really... Just dripping with sun and sunshine and wind in your hair, top down. Thank you very much. Yeah, brilliant song. Okay, so we've got two tracks to go. And the first of those, uh, track nine, is uh, Whitley Bay. Oh, no, sorry, Tiger Bay. Not as imaginative, is it, for me, as, as other other tracks. I, mean, it, I like it. I love the growling chorus. There's another short, but and I presume brilliant solo from Sykes on this. 
Good song, not as strong as the others on the album for me. I think maybe it's because it's, it's right at the end of the album. I find this song sticks in my head more than many others, and I think it's the chorus, because it, it forensically analysed, it's not my favourite track off the album, but by, by, yeah, not by some distance, it just isn't. But it's just so catchy, um, and that chorus is so catchy, and it's as, it's as heavy as anything on here. I, I just think it's where it is on the album, and when, when I turn it off, this is the one that's sort of pounding away. I also love it when Deverell goes a little bit James Hetfield, which he can do, and he does it in here. When he's not searching for those higher notes, he's got a really great growly voice. Yeah, I, I love this song. I think this is just, I, I just love it. And like you, Steve, it's the one that sticks, that and, and take it. The whole album has barely dropped a gear. I just realised some of you drummers out there that uh, this will bore Steve and Mark rigid, but uh, interesting point on this song is that the ride symbol is used in the verses and the hi hat in the choruses. Uh, very often it's the other way around. But thank you for that. Thank you for indulging me. <laughs> <laughs> I bet that won't make the fucking edit. On to then the last song on the album, which is a song called "Don't Stop By," and well. I mean, I don't know, but let's see what band checks you'll make. But they finished this song, for me, sounding like Blue Oyster Cult, the sort of the slower atmospheric chorus. And I think uh, it's a classic ending to, I think, a beautifully balanced album. I have written down here, B.O.C. So, yeah, I, I'm getting a lot of Blue Oyster Cult here. This I just think it's a great way to, the, to end the album. I just This is another one that sticks with me. And you know how sometimes a, a, an album, no matter how good it is, sometimes you just kind of, you drift off and, and it's just wallpaper, it's going on and you, you're not really taking a lot of notice of it. This always brings me back. I think it's a great song. It's a great ending. I've still got Tiger Bay pumping away. No, I'm being unfair. I, I like this a lot. I think I, as an ending, I'm not sure. He's definitely gone a bit Biff Byford in the singing, isn't he? I quite like that. I like that kind of rangy showing. Um, it's more, this is a kind of commercial feel to it. It's got harmonies and quieter moments. But yeah, I like it a lot. And before we leave it, Richard, you kind of uh, told the backstory of how they um, how they got their name and you know the reference to Michael Moorcock, who of course was also a writer for Blue Oyster Cult. Mm-hmm and who also was in Hawkwind. So, you know, all of these links. And, you know, yeah, we're going to be doing another Blue Oyster Cult album reasonably soon. So it all comes full circle in the end. One big happy family. <laughs> right. So much as it pains me to ask you, as well as your highs, gentlemen, do you have any lows? Yes, I do. I do because uh, there has to be a yin to the yang. So silver and gold is my low, uh, but it's not a very low low. It's a, it's more a low high and take it every day of the week. Take it for me. And again, the, the low just happens to be the lowest of the marks. It's not a low score and it's um, blackjack. And for me, oh, the, oh, yeah, no lows. Silver and gold towards the bottom. And oh God, yeah, take it. Yeah, take it. Absolute genius. So yeah, there we go. I think this might do quite well and deservedly so. Uh, Spellbound by the Tigers of Pantang, the second of the albums in our special on the producing genius that is Chris Sangaridis. 
And we leap forward from 1981 a couple of years to an album that he produced for Anvil, which Steve is going to take us through now. Opening album sleeve notes. Yeah, so this was a bit of a, a bit of a shot in the dark, if I'm honest. Um, I knew the name Anvil, didn't quite know how prolific they were. This is the third of 18 studio albums forged in fire, and I have to confess, it's been a thoroughly enjoyable ride. Very entertaining. They're pretty heavy and they're pretty silly in equal measure, and um, I don't mind that in my music. So, yeah, it's been a blast. Released on April the 13th, 1983, recorded January to March on the Attic label, 39 minutes long. Chris Sangaridis, as we know, at the decks and recorded in Phase One Studios in Toronto, which is where they were from. Before that, they'd done Metal on Metal, um, and their next album was Backwaxed in 1985. Backwaxed being unique in that it's the only one of their studio albums that doesn't have three words in the title. Um, and I think that's probably because it's a kind of hybrid album, Backwax. It was five new songs and then five covers. But we'll talk about that in a later because in a bit because they chose one of the tracks off here to go on Backwax and talk about the wrong call. Anyway, the personnel was um, Steve Lips Cudlow on, um, on vocals and guitar. Dave Allison on lead guitar and vocals, Ian Dixon on bass guitar and backing vocals, Rob Rayner on drums, chart position, sales info, no idea. All songs written by Anvil, five on side one, five on side two, so that's a nice 10 tracker. This was their third and their final album on Attic, their second album with uh, with Sangaridi's help, and their last, and he came back in 2007 for their. 13th album, which they helpfully called This Is 13. And I didn't know it at the time, but that was some sort of cry for help. And I kind of know that now, having seen the rockumentary <laughs> entitled Anvil, the story of Anvil. And, I'm not, and I've not seen it all, and I know I should, but I've only seen bits. Everything tells me I've got to watch the whole thing. Reviewers have called Anvil, the story of Anvil, a celebration of failure to the point where that failure becomes a badge of honour. So it sounds like a kind of spinal tap thing. It sounds like a lot of fun. And the other thing to gauge from that and interviews I've read and clips I've seen on YouTube, they just seem like a really nice bunch of guys, a really nice band who had their 15 minutes of fame with that movie. And you you, you can't decry them kind of cash they made because they made fuck all throughout their kind of recording career. Um, and they worked hard and they slogged away in, in around Toronto to make some money. And they're prolific, as I say, 18 studio albums and counting. The other thing to notice about Forged in Fire is that it's their first album post-Donnington um, in 1982, which is a concert they opened, and I get a sense that they were just a smidge out of their depth, judging by the number of reviews I've read, which basically said they were pretty much bottled from, um, from the get-go. The irony being that they were the heaviest band on that card that year, but the punters just simply did not warm to them and just bottled them from, from the off to the point where one of them was playing the bottle as a kind of slide guitar, one of the many bottles that came on stage. Forged in Fire, anyway, it's, 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 a, it's quite a weird mix. There's some really good stuff on here. There's some quite shit stuff, um, let's be honest. They're definitely at their best when they're going at it, total power when they try and rein it in and be a bit different they kind of seem to lose their way a little bit i think there's some great stuff on here it's a, it's a mixed bag it's a really mixed bag don't regret picking it not sure i'll pick another one 
by Anvil, but <laughs> um, you two might. Who knows? Tell me what your thoughts are. Yeah, I'm glad you picked it. I'm glad you picked it. it it's been enjoyable. It, it's Yeah, I knew about the documentary. It's hard to know how seriously they take themselves. I think they just want to make music and have, have fun. At times, they do spill over into a, a bit Spinal Tap, a bit Man of War territory. I did find myself enjoying this album more when I, I just sat back and let it surround me rather than trying to read too much into it. But I agree with you, Steve. There's some some really good heavy tracks on here. There's a couple of quite different tracks and there's a few unremarkable ones. But as an overall album, yeah, it's, it's, it's been enjoyable. Really good. Um, so how do I feel about this album? Against my criteria of would I play it again, the answer to that is probably no, I wouldn't. Would I have played Metal on Metal again? Absolutely. This is this is not Anvil's best album by, by quite a stretch, I would say. I mean, I've not heard much Anvil at all before you picked this, so I went back and I listened to the first album and Metal on Metal, and Metal on Metal is a really, really good album. I mean, a really good, almost new wave of British heavy metal, a completely different sound, because I WhatsApp you two quite early on in the process, didn't I, and say, is anybody else getting quite a lot of Man of War, you know, listening to Anvil? Because they are. For me, they are a, they're, they're almost, I mean, they were around before Man of War, weren't they? But they're almost sort of sub-Man of War. There's something about them that, just it makes you think of that kind of stuff. Whereas actually the first two albums are more new wave of British heavy metal. So they talk about Anvil being you know, one of the most important, most influential rock bands that there was, you know, in the in the early 80s. And listening to the first two albums, I can really hear that. Just a footnote about the the rockumentary. I think I've watched about 75% of it and then had to stop watching it for a, for a while for all sorts of reasons. It is at once funny and equally tragic it's there is a point at which you just go this is more spinal tap than spinal tap and there are bits that make you want to put your head in your hands and weep because as you said steve they are just a nice but nice bunch of blokes who are passionate about what they do and that's all they really want to do and to make ends meet in the middle they go out and lips goes and delivers school meals to schools and Dave Allison goes and does something else. I know I can't remember what, but you know, they've got regular jobs that pay the bills at home. And then, you know, when they can, they go out and they tour and they play music and by and large, they tend to get royally fucked in the process. Mm-hmm. And you know, the, the, the rockumentary, if you do, you know, for anyone listening to this, go and go and watch it because the, the one thing it will do is it'll make you love them a little bit more. Mm-hmm. But, um, how do I feel about this? I think the the bad outweighs the good in the end is kind of where I've come down with it. Okay. Yeah, no, that's fair enough. I'll tell you what I would say in their defence. I'd go and see them live. I think I'd go and see them live. I think they've put on a decent show in that Man of War way. This is a classic case of there are two or three tracks on here that I think I'm probably speaking on behalf of the pair of you will bring it down score-wise because it's yeah. just that sort of album. It has low points. You know, we struggle to find lows on, on Spellbound. There's no struggle finding a low or two on this thing. It's just which one's lower than the rest.
what I would say about it is that, um, as I say, it's 10 tracks and five on each side. And it doesn't start with a low. It starts, to my mind, um, with an absolute high, um, which is the title track, um, which obviously, which is called Forged in Fire, like I needed to say that, because it's the title track. Um, but, and I like that kind of metal church pile driver drama to the to the beginning of, of, of this. And I'm already thinking that at this point, very early on in, the, in, in this, I'm thinking that Lips vocals kind of like, say, Gord Kirchin, a.k.a. Pile Driver, or any of those other very theatrical singers of the 80s, like King Diamond, uh, King Diamond and people like that. It's going to grate at some point. And I'm not there yet, but I, I, I sense that points on this album, Lips is going to hurt me. That aside, I think this is a great song. I think it's proper doomy. It's almost quite surprising as an open night, especially when the rest of the album, as you find out, isn't actually quite like this. There's a malevolence about it. There's a sort of there's an even slower midsection to die for, and then it crashes back into the riff. I like it. I I, I, I think this is entertaining, but not in a just not in a kitsch naff way. I think it's good entertaining doom metal, for want of a better phrase. This is where it all feels a bit sub man of war to me. Yeah. Is that it's just too laboured too contrived and like you i'm i'm kind of getting a a, for, a sense of deep foreboding about his voice at this point as well it's very heavy they wanted to be heavy didn't they I mean, particularly this song let's be clear you know they've got their science right if you read the lyrics you know scraping the earth in search of the essence metallic rock ore where iron is present i mean Absolutely spot on. <laughs> spot on. There's no Biff Byford physics <laughs> rubbish here, you know. So uh, I, I found the song an education. <laughs> um, and yeah, yeah, I, I, I like it. I, 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 yeah, like Stephen, I like the structure. I like how it sort of drops back in, quiet a middle bit. For such a big opener, the one mistake they made unlike other songs on the album that do have great finishes, is this fades out. Yeah, a song has... like this should not fade out. It it's should have true. the biggest kick in the teeth finishing chord yeah. you've ever heard. But hey-ho, maybe they didn't know quite when they were going to do it. <laughs> it's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, which maintains the thought process that perhaps it's not an opening song just because just it's named after the, type, after the album. It doesn't need to be number one. And I, did, and, I, and I think Shadow Zone would have been, which is the second song. Um, if your knowledge of Anvil was only these first two tracks, say, um, you genuinely wouldn't know what you had on your hands, I don't think, because this is, they're chalk and cheese. This is so different from the opener, you know, which is all sort of doom and, and, and evil and black. This is decent speed, you know. This is uh, a complete and, and total sort of tempo change. Won't surprise anyone to know that I, I prefer this. Um <laughs> Part one of this song is Dynamite, and then part two is Dynamite and Some. And it's Cudlow's guitar solo against a thunderous backbeat, and it's fucking joyful. It really is. Is that Cudlow's guitar solo? Yeah, he's lead guitarist. So that is just an absolutely monumental, wailing, heavy metal guitar solo. Yeah. And I love those. I absolutely love them. And that, for me, that's what makes this track. It's almost thrash, isn't it? I mean, it's like merciful fate light. <laughs> <laughs> I 
I think there, it's brilliant. I think it's absolutely brilliant. And and at that point, I'm just thinking, yeah, this this album is um is awesome. I'm really enjoying it. And and that doesn't change on track three as well, which is called Free as the Wind, which I think is another cracker. It, it's kind of got a slightly moodier start. Immediately feels slightly different. Lyrics are fucking laughable, mind. You, you know, you mentioned your nod to Man of War. I mean, this track, oh god, this kind of you know, we're so metal shit. Having said all that, this is a seriously good noise. Loads and loads and loads of lead guitar in any number of different guises. Thumper of a backbeat, pace changes galore, thrashy again. It's just a great, corny metal track. I love it. Yep, me too. Uh, I love the way that it, it just slows right down for the, I was going to say chorus. It's not really a chorus, is it? The only thing I would say about this is that I think the production on this is actually a bit thin on this particular track, but it's it's absolutely relentless. I think this is a, a, a highlight of the album. Hmm. Not the highlight, but a highlight. I didn't find it as enjoyable as the first two. I found it, I don't know, a bit more straightforward. Some of the the drum fills through the album, I think, are a bit unnecessary. And again, uh, I, th- I think on this one in particular. So, yeah, I, I, it was a bit of a step down bit of a step down for me from the first two. My first step down comes now with Never Deceive Me, which is track four. So I've really enjoyed my first three dose, Anvil doses. You know, there's me saying that, you know, Lips is going to great as a vocalist. So they give us a new vocalist here in Dave Allison. It doesn't work. It's a different sound and I don't particularly like it. I don't think he's got a great voice. The song's all a bit morose, if I'm honest. Are they trying to do that kind of rain back vibe that, you know, Phil Linnett did so well with Thin Lizzy? I don't know, Mm -hmm. but I don't get this track at all particularly. And Mark's smiling at me as if to say he doesn't either. No, I really like this. (laughs) And I think it's because it's more Nwobum. It's more of a throwback to 80, 81. And it's interesting because if you don't like this, you probably won't like the first two albums as much as I do because this is more in, it's not quite this star because this is, I think, quite unique. But the, the first two albums are much closer to this than they are to Forged in Fire, to the rest of the album. So I really like this, actually, I have to say. I think it's, uh, and I think I also prefer it because he's not, screeching at me yeah it's, it's a very different vocal feel isn't it well the whole so- the song is a complete the song's different yeah departure isn't it from yeah. everything else on the album it is yeah yeah i mean after the first three for me this is a really unexpected change and in a good way absolutely <laughs> got the 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 lineup vibe the the real sort of thin lizzie almost a bit of a sort of slowed down bad reputation about it isn't yes it? it steps back up for me with this one Anyway, side one finishes off with, um, oh, for fuck's sake. I mean, this is just fucking laughable. This is, but not in a good way. This is butter bust jerky. Now, listen, I like my smut as much as the next man. <laughs> but this song is so preposterous. The, the, the opening lyrics, all I need is a lady with more than average size. She's got to be a bit crazy, won't take no compromise. If she can fill a D cup, it's good enough to keep me up. And that's the good bit. And then it just deteriorates from there on. And it just gets worse and worse. And it's not big and it's not clever. And in the hands of Wasp, it would bring a smile to my face because they would, you know what I mean, Mark? Because they do smut sensationally, Wasp. This, I just find this really annoying. But the riff's decent. The solo's quite good. 
but I just find the whole thing just a bit shit. Okay, so I'm going to say it because you haven't. This is about tip fucking. And it gives you, it's almost like an instruction manual on how to get the best tip fuck. So let's just put that out there. This is monumentally awful because it's got no, there's no guile to it, is there? The thing with Wasp is that, yeah, there's almost a nod and a wink. And yeah, they're quite, yeah, they're quite overt and quite direct, but not quite in this way. And no, I've got no time for this song at all. I think it's awful. Butter bust jerky, uh, that is your instruction manual. Just lather it up and jerk away. <laughs> Richard? As a song, it's a complete mess. I mean, <clears throat> what can we descri- how can we describe it sound-wise? It's kind of got a bit of a sound, and some of the riffs are reminiscent of uh, Maiden's Phantom of the Opera. But just think of Phantom of the Opera cut into a thousand pieces and thrown up in the air. What's another footnote to this is that despite its shitness, the next album, as I say, was called Backwax, which was hybrid. So that was five new tr- new songs and five that they'd compiled from the previous three albums. So they've got three albums to pick five tracks from, and they picked this fucking thing. And this this is on Backwax on the next album. I just I just don't get it. It's just it's an abomination. It really is, and it just makes you turn the record over sharpish to Future Wars. Yeah, I like this. The one standout to this, I, it's the lyrics. Ronnie James Dio would have approved. The lyrics on this are just fucking delightful. I love it. It's just an utter fantasy story. Yeah, Wizards and Warlocks. We got them packing here. It's brilliant. It's proper Dio stuff. Um, and I like this. I think it's super fast, super heavy, nice guitar hook. Yeah, no problem with it. This, again, is back to Man of War territory, isn't it? Um, mm. In terms of subject matter and and sound. Um, yeah, it's fine. It's fine. Don't go mad about it. Don't dislike it. I'm impressed with the effort on the vocals in this track. <laughs> he does. Yeah. He, he really does go for it on the vocals of this. Interesting that you reference Fans in the Opera about um, butter bust jerky, because uh, I think this is this has got a, a real maiden feel to it as well. And the song structure, I think, puts it in very similar territory to, to Prowler, but it's sufficiently original for me to score reasonably well i quite like it i don't think it's sensational but it's a yeah it's good good um good start to side two yeah there's not there's not a lot of sensational to come if i'm honest but i do like the next one which is hard times fast ladies you listen to a song like this and you take away all the theater of the vocals and the chorals and and there's loads of theater in it i'm getting a bridge between nuobum and thrash here we talked about you know the the thrash it's because it's kind of the sort of priest power to this and some. I just think a good singer on a track like this, and this becomes massive because it's a great riff, a real snap to it, very well written. I, I this is this is well written where others aren't. This could almost be something. I think I like this song. It's got another one of those brilliant wailing guitar solos as well, mm. um, which really lifts it. I'm being ground down by yeah. the vocal performance yeah. now. I have to say, yeah, if you look beyond that. And you just listen to it for the music. I think it's a pretty decent song, actually. It's a good song. They now start to run out of steam for me on, yeah. on this album. Uh, okay. Certainly on the second side, there's the, the variety that I was a bit surprised at on on the first side starts to disappear a little. Uh, yeah, there's some good bits to it. Yeah, Steve said the the riff, the riff sinking is good, uh, and it's got a bloody good finish. 
Make It Up To You is track eight, and it's one of those tracks where they depart the heavy-as-fuck script, and that's yeah, not that great to me. I'm I'm like Richard now. I think they're – I mean, I'm a track later than Richard, but I do think they're now running out of steam. It's a fair riff, both yet another, you know, decent solo. But the singing on this wears me down now as well, and it's um, it, it's – messy this is messy awful chorus and the guitars are good but not quite enough to rescue it mm. but they picked the pace up again with motor mount i think it's the fastest yet i think sinking into an even smuttier abyss than butter bus jerky fucking i've ever wrote these lyrics anyway i quite like this it's got a bit of a sort of whiplash feel to it i mean i'm not suggesting for one minute it's in that league but yeah blinding solo it, it is that yeah they're trying to speed metal on there. I mean whether it, I don't yeah. know motor mount was it is their attempt at motorhead? I don't know. I mean it's one of those songs where bands try a fast paced song and it's almost like they can't keep up with themselves. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But it, but it, it did put a smile on my face. Yeah, I mean the the lyrics are <laughs> just <laughs> you you couldn't. Nobody's going to write these lyrics in 2021. <laughs> Let's just say that. <laughs> Mind you, you are talking about a band that one of their most played songs live is Show Me Your Tits. So, you know, go figure. Mm. Well, you've only got one more track to put up with of Mr. Lips Cudlow, which is uh, Winged Assassins, um, which starts off with more Atmos. They do like a bit of Atmos. So you're thinking possibly into something long and theatrical and, you know, but then you look at it, it's only 3.46 long, so it's pretty much more of the same. Bit doomy, bit heavy, which is all good, bit pacey. I've got a nice kind of Exodus vibe to the riff through the verses, but nothing Exodus-like or anything like about the absurdity of the chorus where they just ham it up way too much. And for the umpteenth time, it's a great solo. Decent enough finish. Yeah, I could... I could listen to the guitars all night, all day. I think they are an absolute highlight on this album. This is their fourth most played live song, 354 times. Um, so clearly their fan base lapped this up. Basically, I, I've had enough now. I just, <laughs> yeah. I, it's time to stop. <laughs> it's an okay finish for me. It, it is, yeah, back to Man of War kind of territory, isn't it? And it, it's, a, it's, it's fast, but... Uh, no more than average, probably below average. Well, some highs and lows, and, and there will be lows, won't there? There will be lows. Yeah, well, I don't think it's going to come as any surprise to find that um, that the tit-fucking is tit-fucking awful, and that is my low. Uh, my high, well, I'm really sorry, Steve, never deceive me. I really liked it. <laughs> Which I know makes, just increases your level of disappointment in me. Yes. <laughs> the worst thing about it is I've got a horrible feeling Rich is going to replicate you and you're both a pair of tossers. So, but anyway, <laughs> prove me wrong. Okay. Well, I agree with Mark <laughs> on the low. Um, butter bus jerky. No, I'm going to give my high to, to Forged in Fire. I'm going to give my high to Forged in Fire because uh, it's just good, proper, heavy, stomping fun. I think it's been fun. I think it's like you... Uh, Butterbust jerky just yeah, just doesn't work, and Shadow Zone gets my gets my top mark. I'd listen. To, I'd, I'd I'd go back and listen to some more Anvil on the strength of this. I think there's enough potential here, but 
you know, 18 albums. I've got a horrible feeling that album 18 probably doesn't sound an awful lot different to album one. So there you have it. So there's three albums, three albums forged in fire and forged by Chris Sangarides. And we're now going to go and score them. And then we're going to find out where they're going to fall in the Enter Sad Men Hall of Fame. Reviews complete. Initializing rating process. Okay, so three albums reviewed, three albums now rated, uh, starting with Quartz, which was the first album we dealt with this evening, their self-titled debut from 1977. Um, scores on the doors there. Well, uh, probably not surprisingly, uh, I liked it most of all, with an 8.14. Steve, you gave it a 6.9 and a little bit, and Richard, you gave it 7.125 for an overall average score of 7.4 dead. Tigers of Pantang, I think they did rather well. Yeah, not surprisingly, we all liked it, so the scores reflect that, and they were as follows. Steve gave it a 7.7 recurring, Mark, you gave it an 8.47 and some, and I gave it an 8.27 and some, so those two Clear eights give it an overall of 8.177777, which is a pretty good score. Steve, how did Anvil do? Well, not as well, unsurprisingly. Yeah, I gave it 6.95. Mark, you gave it 7.02. Generosity itself. And Richard, you gave it 6.3 for a total score of 6.75. Six six seven. So let's go and see. Well, I think we can pretty much guess where Anvil's going to wind up in the Hall of Fame, but let's see where uh, Quartz and Tigers of Pantang have uh, found themselves as well. It's time to put the rock in a hard place. Opening the Hall of Fame. So the Hall of Fame now includes 156 albums. And where did our three end up then? Well, Anvil's Forged in Fire is the lowest of our trio tonight. Not at the bottom, but uh, about 20 places off it. Uh, They come in at number 137, uh, just above Waiting for the Night by the Runaways and just below Core by the Stone Temple Pilots. Uh, quite a climb up before we reach uh, Quartz. Uh, so Quartz have made it comfortably into the top 100 and they're sitting at number 89. Uh, they've uh, come in just above Phantom Blues Built to Perform and just below the Years of Decay by Overkill. And the Tigers, well, the Tigers have leapt above them both by quite a way and they've actually made the top 20. Uh, they've come in at number 17. And, uh, well, isn't that interesting? Uh, one place above that other classic from uh, Mr. Sangarita's Mean Streak, uh, Wine Tier 18, and they're a place below, if you want blood, by ACDC at 16. How about those positions then, guys? Well, do you know what? The thing that strikes me most about that is not the relative positions of the albums, but the fact that three of the albums currently sitting in the top 20 were produced by Chris Sangarides. <laughs> so that'd be Y&T, Tiger's Pantang and Thin Lizzy's Thunder and Lightning. So, I mean, you know, that just shows the measure of his ability, doesn't it? And in the end, that's what this episode is all about. Yeah. Just two things that stand out for me. A, the lowliness or relative lowliness of, um, of Quartz, given that, Mark, you gave it a score of well over eight, and I'd be interested to know... 
that's probably in your top 20 scores, I would have thought. And yeah, it's wound up at 89th, which, you know, again, shows that, you know, this is a, you know, this is a collaborative thing and it's, uh, you know, unanimity is, is everything here. And Tigers of Pantang Spellbound, before we started this, would I have said that's destined for the top 20? I'd have said no. I absolutely would have said no. Not, not because I didn't like it, because I do like it. And, and the scores have proved how much we like it. You, it wouldn't have been on your radar, would it, as a possible no. top 20? Unlike, say, Back in Black, which we still haven't done. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I, I wouldn't have put Tigers in the top 20. Time is not kind to some albums because you listen to them at the time and, you know, the last time I heard Spellbound all the way through, I, I probably wasn't even in my 20s, to be honest. And so you have a perception of it that perhaps is not entirely accurate in terms of how the, you know, how, how that reflects the, the true value and, and scope of the music. So um, I'm really pleased to see them in the top 20. I'm not sure they'll stay there. In fact, I, I'm, I know they won't because I think there are other albums that will score, you know, at least three albums that will score above that. But, you know, to, to make the top 20, given, you know, what are we saying now? You've In order to break into the top 25, you've got to be scoring above eight. Yeah. Which good old Anvil never looked like getting anywhere near, did they bless them? So I hope you've enjoyed our celebration of uh, the work of Chris Sangaridis. Three albums in the top 20, a sure measure of how good a, and talented an individual he was. So thanks again for joining us and for listening to us rabbiting on. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed it. We'll see you again very, very soon. Uh, until then, take real care of yourselves. Cheers. Bye. All music clips featured in the Enter Sad Men podcast appear within the context of criticism and or commentary, and as such are used under the fair use provisions of the exceptions to copyright rules of UK and international copyright law. To make sure the rock rolls forever on, Mark, Steve, and Rich urge all their listeners to show their love and support for the artists and writers featured on the show by purchasing the original music or subscribing to a licensed and regulated streaming service.